Welcome everyone to Daf Yomi, One Week at a Time, Masechet uh, Chagiga. This is our fourth lesson and our last lesson in this Masechet. And uh, I'm really proud of all of you. We are finishing the Masechet today. And not only are we finishing this Masechet, but we are finishing the entire uh, book of Moed. Uh, again, as I mentioned last week, uh, the the Mishnah and the Gemara are divided up into six books. Um, the first is Ra'im, uh, the second is Moed. So we are finishing the second book of the Mishnah, uh, and that uh, includes many Masechtot, many tractates that we have learned. Uh, and today, Chagiga uh, is the last tractate in. Seder Moed, in the book of Moed, uh, and with that we are finishing the entire section that deals with um, all the holidays. So, um, you know, at the, you know, if you think back, uh, those of you who have been learning with me uh, for a while, so we started with Masechet Shabbat, right, Brachot is in uh, Seder Zraim, uh, but uh, Shabbat is the beginning of Seder Moed, where we we learned about Shabbat. We learned about uh, we learned Masachet Psachim about Pesach and Eruvin and Shkalim uh, and Sukkah and Rosh Hashanah. You have learned many many uh, Masachtot, uh, and we are really uh, I think this is tonight is the culmination uh, really of all that learning. So um, maybe we'll talk a little bit about that. Uh, at the end, uh, today we're going to finish up um, this uh, this Masechet. Again, um, if you remember last week, we started discussing the laws of purity and impurity. Maybe I'll put up the, um, the chart that I had last week. Um, Here's a here's the chart that we mentioned last week uh, showing the different levels of purity. Uh, it's interesting that they did it this way. Uh, again, um, uh, it's interesting because the the bottom, which is uh, talking about uh, sacrificial meat, right? Kudshim is sacrificial meat. It is the most um, susceptible uh, to uh, impurity, to tumah. Uh, the, the, the level just above that, the green one, which is, um, uh, is talking about um, um, truma, uh, things that, uh, again, truma that can become tameh. Um, so we ended up last week, um, we started the, the, uh, the last chapter uh, in Chagiga, and uh, we discussed how, um, in general, as, as you can see on this like pyramid, uh, the, the last, you know, the bottom level, uh, Kadshim, meaning sacrificial meat, uh, are uh, the most susceptible, maybe the most stringent when it comes to impurity, uh, as opposed to Truma, uh, which is one level above. Um, so um, our last week we mentioned the Mishnah uh, at the bottom of Daf 20, uh, we discussed that, um, again, Kodesh is more stringent than Truma, and we had a whole list of, um, of cases 
there were 10 cases that we listed where we see that sacrificial meat is more, uh, I guess the idea is more susceptible to impurity um, and therefore more stringent. Uh, today on DAF 21, um, we have a discussion in the Gemara why, uh, why that is or how that is. Um, and the Gemara discusses the case that uh, we started with uh, in the Mishnah, which is that if you have um, one vessel inside another, can you immerse the, those two vessels in a mikvah? Uh, and the idea is, again, in general, you have to immerse uh, vessels into a mikvah so that the water touches all parts of the vessel. What if there were there was a vessel one inside the other? So the Mishnah said to us that for Truma, that would be okay. But for Kodesh, when we're dealing with uh, sacrificial parts, uh, we're going to be more stringent and not allow that type of immersion. Um, so the Gemara suggests maybe it's because uh, when one vessel is inside the other, um, it's going to block the water from touching the entire surface of the vessel. Uh, that's what's called in Hebrew a chatzitza. Chatzitza means um, like a, in, um, something that interrupts the water from touching the surface. Um, also, uh, the same idea was, let's say you have something that's knotted. If something is knotted, you can't put it in the mikvah because presumably where it's knotted, where it's tied together, the water won't get in to all of those areas. Um, the Gemara tells us that these cases, uh, that there are 10 stringencies, the first five um, deal with, uh, again, Kodesh, uh, things that are sanctified, and Chulin, again, that's mundane things that are being treated as Kodesh. Uh, so just to remind us, uh, we mentioned this last week that sometimes, um, the people wanted to be extra careful and they took their foods that didn't have to be very carefully guarded, right? It was what's called chulin. It's totally mundane. Um, and they treated it as if it was Kodesh, as if uh, it was uh, sanctified. And therefore, they were very careful with that, uh, that food. Um, the Gemara says that the last five cases uh, the last five cases um, only deal with uh, things that are actually sanctified, but not things that you are treating as sanctified. Um, the, the Gemara continues and um, describes um, another option of what we're talking about. Um, it tells us that um, when you have a vessel, um, if it, it needs to be open, um, there's basically a minimum size of a vessel that one can immerse something else in it, right? Again, we actually, if you remember, we had a case last week about uh, immersing a needle, right? Again, I don't want to put a little needle into a big mikvah. I'm scared it's going to get lost. Um, so I want to put it into something smaller. Um, so the, the Gemara says that if there's a vessel, um, the opening of that vessel has to be at least two fingers wide. Uh, and then if the, if the vessel is at least two fingers wide, then you can immerse the a needle in that vessel when you put it into the mikvah. Um, the, the Gemara uses the same idea to say that you can connect 
a kosher mikvah, right? A mikvah that is a certain size to a mikvah that is not kosher in the sense that it's not the minimum size or the water is not the exact water that you need. If you connect it with a tube that's at least two fingers wide, uh, that makes the both bodies of water able to uh, um, to immerse in, which, by the way, is actually the way uh, we have mikvahs nowadays. Uh, so maybe just I'll take a moment to explain. Um, we're supposed to immerse in what's called maim chayim, which means living water. That means water that is um, either rainwater or spring water. Um, most people don't have springs next to their house, uh, and if they do, the springs are generally cold, so that's not always uh, a fun, uh, um, immersing experience. Um, so what do people do? Um, if you've been to a, you know, when we go to the mikvah, um, that water that we're actually immersing in is actually water that came out of the tap. That's not kosher mikvah water. But what do we do? We have a pool of water that's rainwater. We connect it with a pipe to, uh, right, an open pipe to the mikvah that we are going to immerse in. We fill that mikvah water up with regular clean water from the top that's usually heated, uh, you know, it's filtered. Uh, and because it's connected to the rainwater, that becomes a kosher mikvah. Um, so that's actually um, referred to um, in, our, in our Gemara at the bottom of Daf 21. Um, okay, Daf 22 um, tells us that, um, again, we were talking about um, vessels inside one another. So the Gemara tells us on Daf 22 that you can fill up a wicker basket with other vessels in it and immerse them together. Again, the difference here is that a wicker basket has holes in it um, and the water is going to get in and touch all of the vessels. Um, some say that that is okay. Some say that it's not okay. Um, Another way to interpret our case of the vessel inside another vessel is that the outer vessel has to be pure to begin with. Um, and then uh, you can put, um, sorry, but if it's impure, even if the opening is less than, uh, than, two, millimeter, than two fingers, um, it is actually okay to immerse them together because the idea is that the outer vessel is going to be purified, and as it's being purified, it will also purify the things that are in the inside. Um, some say that you can use a wicker basket as the outer vessel only if you're um, immersing the, the vessels for truma. But if you're immersing the vessels for um, kodesh, for sanctified things, then it's not okay. Um, here we have the discussion of a chaver. Um, so to remind us, a chaver, the word actually means a friend, uh, but chaver means someone who is very meticulous when it comes to the, the laws of purity and impurity. Um, so the chaver is always going to be careful and trustworthy. Um, the other person that we're talking about in this Gemara is called an Am Ha'aretz. Uh, the, the, the words mean, right, um, uh, part of the nation, 
of the land, right? Um, there are different explanations of what this means. Uh, does it mean ignorant? Does it mean less observant? Does it mean non-observant? Uh, does it mean less careful? Um, it's not clear. We have different implications at different places in uh, in the Gemara. Uh, here, especially in the case of uh, talking about um, impurity, meaning Tum'ah and Tahara, I think the idea here is that the Amaharit is someone who is not careful about uh, their belongings, about their clothing. Uh, they don't care. Uh, again, if it's neglect, if it's ignorance, I'm, I'm not exactly sure. Uh, but the idea is that they're not careful about impurity. And therefore, we assume that their things are impure because in the course of one's lifetime, uh, you touch dead things, um, you come in contact with different uh, you know, um, bodily fluids. Um, again, the chaver is going to be very careful. The amha'aret is less careful. What's interesting is that, especially in this masachet, when we're talking about unity uh, of the Jewish people and um, people coming together, uh, again, to celebrate the festival, uh, we will see that there are some leniencies when dealing with these two groups of people. Um, we don't want, right, the Gemara actually tells us on Daf 22, um, we do not want animosity between the Chaver and the Am Haaretz, right? Even though um, one is very careful, the other is less careful, uh, we don't want animosity. And therefore, um, we will... Um, the other, I, and therefore we will accept uh, certain things from the Amhaaret, um, but not everything. Um, so when we're dealing with Kodesh, um, with things that are sanctified, either, again, either the idea is that um, the Amhaaret will be much more careful, and therefore uh, we trust them and and uh, we. Um, we share different vessels, um, or the idea is that when everybody's going to Jerusalem, again, there's this idea of unity specifically in Jerusalem. Uh, and therefore, the Gemara continues and says that we accept wine and oil in the temple from an Amhaaretz. Again, the assumption was that the Amhaaretz, when they touch things, they're going to make it impure. But if they go out of their way to bring things to Jerusalem, to sanctify it for the temple, we trust them to say that this is pure. Um, what about borrowing vessels? Right? Can you borrow uh, the vessel, a vessel from the Am Haaretz? What is its, uh, what is its um, um, status? Um, so the... Um, um, the the Gemara says you can borrow uh, again these these vessels, um, earthenware vessels. Um, so it's very interesting to understand that in those days, um, earthenware vessels many times were seen as disposable. What does that mean? Uh, you took earthenware vessels, you used them, let's say, for sanctified food. Uh, now that has a very high level of a sanctity, you're not allowed to use it for anything else. What would you do? You would break it, right? You you break it. Um, then what happens? 
someone can take that, right? You ground it up, it comes, becomes dirt again, right? You mix it with water, it becomes clay again, right? So it's interesting to think um, that in the time of, uh, of the temple, uh, right, again, any, any person, anyone who's ever uh, seen an archaeological site or has been, let's say, to the Israel Museum, there are a lot of pottery shards, um, especially around the temple, right, because they would break these vessels so that nobody would use them afterwards. Uh, also, if they become impure, the only thing you can do with them is break them. Uh, again, you could repair them afterwards and use them again. Um, if you have a, an earthenware vessel and it is sealed, uh, and the Gemara explains uh, how it is sealed, it's a double seal, it's called tsamid petil, which means that it's basically like stopped up, like, like sealed, like you put something in the top and then you um, seal it around the opening. So that double seal will prevent um, the tuma, the impurity from going inside the vessel and the, the contents of the vessels remain pure, um, whether they're liquid or solid. Um, and uh, therefore, uh, you can borrow uh, different vessels uh, from an amharet. Some say you need to immerse them first, again, because we're concerned that they are impure. Um, we trust the amharet. Uh, to say that he isn't um, impure from a dead body, right? Again, the top of our pyramid here, uh, that is the highest or the most um, stringent type of, of impurity. Um, we trust the, the Amha'arets to say whether or not um, they are impure from uh, contact with a dead body, um, but not about, right, this is about the person, but not about their items, their kelim, their vessels. Again, the assumption is uh, that they're not so careful with their vessels and they don't watch them all the time and they're not really sure. Um, they're trusted about their fruit, um, but, uh, but um, they're trusted to say if their fruit is able or susceptible to become impure, um, but not trusted to say if it is pure or not. Again, um, they could have left uh, their, their, um, their produce unattended and they don't really know what happened. Um, okay, uh, back to our vessels. We said that uh, the outside of the vessel can become impure um, and the rim and the inside can remain pure, right? It's interesting that in, in certain cases, you can actually split um, you know, the different surfaces of the utensil. But if the inside of the utensil becomes impure, that means everything is seen as tame, as impure. Um, handles are separate from the rest of the vessel. Again, if you think about, um, you know, uh, a jug with two handles or a pot where it might have one handle, those are seen as separate from the vessel uh, in terms of truma, again, um, this third level. Um, but when we're dealing with kodesh, where we want to be uh, extra careful, we're going to say the handle is not seen as separate. Therefore, if someone who is impure touched the handle of a vessel, the entire vessel is now impure in relation to um, kodesh, sanctified food. Um, 
Okay. Um, the the Gemara continues on Daf twenty three uh, and tells us about um, um, what about carrying uh, something that has uh, purity, right? It's something that we want to maintain purity. Um, and there's a story that somebody was carrying in one hand or you know in one area something that was impure, and in the other area something that needed to remain pure, meaning something kadosh, uh, uh, sanctified. And there was an incident of a person who was carrying this barrel of sanctified wine, and his sandal broke, and he put um, the sandal on top of the barrel, and the sandal that was impure fell in, and it made everything impure. Uh, and therefore, uh, they made a decree, right, a gezera, a decree, that that you're not allowed to carry uh, something that is impure with kodesh, with something that is sanctified. Um, the story happens with kodesh again, with this highest level. Uh, therefore, the decree is only about kodesh. It's not with truma or anything else that I'm concerned um, if it would get um, if it would get impure. Okay, excuse me, sorry. Um, another example of a decree that was based on a specific incident and not extended to related cases was that a person was transporting um, the, the uh, water with the ashes of the red heifer, of the para'aduma. This is like the highest level and the most susceptible um, to impurity. Uh, and he was transporting it on a boat in the Jordan. And then he found out that there was impurity in the boat uh, and it messed up, you know, the, the, this very special water. Uh, and therefore, there was a decree that you cannot transport the water with the ashes um, in a boat on the Jordan, um, but you can carry it over a bridge or in a carriage, um, but the decree was specifically based on this case. Um, there's a machloket, uh, a, a disagreement, if you, let's say, again, we said you're not supposed to carry these two things together. Again, the assumption is they're not touching, uh, but you're carrying it together, you're not supposed to do it lest they touch each other. Um, so there's a machloket, what happens if you do anyway, either by accident or on purpose, does the item automatically become impure or not, right? There are both opinions uh, in, the, um, in the Gemara. Uh, Daf 23 continues um, and talks about when someone makes a vessel, you make a bowl or a cup. Um, the idea is that when you finish making the, the, the cup, uh, or any vessel, you need to immerse it in the mikvah before using it for kodesh, before using it for sanctified uh, food. So the Gemara tells us that if a chaver, again, that's the person who is very careful, if the chaver finished making the vessel, it, um, it's, um, we're concerned that maybe an am ha'aretz came by and maybe, uh, you know, some of his spit uh, went on this vessel, uh, and therefore you have to immerse it in the mikvah. Um, what about uh, the same idea? Uh, what about a reed that they would cut uh, and they would use it to hold the ashes of the red heifer, of the para'aduma? Um, again, we say 
that um, uh, a chaver, again, is the one who cut it, but maybe an amhaaretz, right, spit on it, near it, uh, again, accidentally or on purpose, we don't know, um, but we have to, again, be very careful and immerse it before we use it uh, for the, the ashes. Um, here's just a side point, but a, a very interesting one. Sorry. Um, the, the Gemara discusses um, the um, difference between um, the... Uh, the, I would say the the observant Jews and the sectarians. Uh, we mentioned this, I think, last time uh, that we we mentioned the the tzedukim, um who were uh, a, a, sect, a sect of of Judaism when they started, but at the end were not considered Jews. Uh, but basically, they were a sect that only uh, followed the written Torah. Uh, but not the oral Torah. They did not believe in uh, rabbinic authority, um, and therefore they, they misinterpreted uh, numerous things. Um, and we'll see throughout the Gemara that um, there were things that were done in order to make sure that the Jews that were doing these, uh, these actions were observant Jews and not a part of a sect. Uh, they were not sectarian. Um, so we saw that last week in terms of Shavuot. Um, here uh, we have the same thing, uh, a similar idea with the para aduma, with the red heifer, um, that um, the, the prushim, meaning the observant Jews, um, said that um, the, the, um, the ceremony could be done by a person who, again, obviously, as we said, the ashes are very susceptible to impurity. Um, but according to the oral law, the person who is dealing with these ashes is allowed to um, have been, he was allowed to have been impure that morning, went to the mikvah, and now he's allowed to uh, um, come in contact with the ashes uh, and the water of the red of the red heifer, um, the para aduma. Um, the tzdukim said no. Um, this person who was impure in the morning uh, and then went to the mikvah, you have to wait till sunset for that person to be completely pure, which is true. Um, but um, the the prushim said it's okay. You that person can um, deal with these ashes. Um, the Tzdukim said no, and therefore um, they were very careful to make sure that that distinction was made. Um, okay, um, the next idea is uh, at the top of DAF 24, uh, the concept that a vessel unites everything that is in it, meaning even if the things aren't touching each other, the fact that they're in the same vessel, uh, they are seen as, as, as if they're touching, which means that if a person touches, right, let's say you have a bowl of apples, even if they're not touching each other, uh, and a person who is impure touches one apple, uh, with regard to Kodesh, to sanctified food, that everything is seen as impure. That is not the case for lesser levels of impurity. Um, so that's just important to understand. Um, 
And um, the, the, the Gemara continues um, and talks about, um, about uh, someone who, uh, again, went to the mikvah. Let's say somebody has to, um, uh, let's say a zav or someone who um, gave birth, uh, right? You go to the mikvah and the next day you bring a sacrifice. Um, that person, um, even though they went to the mikvah, uh, when they needed to go, the next day uh, after they bring their sacrifice, if they want to eat from that sacrifice, they need to go to the mikvah again uh, because they weren't in the mindset of making sure that uh, they are fully pure. Um, and again, a lot of this has to do with awareness. Were you aware uh, if you came in contact with impurity? Um, okay. Um, let's talk about hands. Um, in general, as we mentioned before, right, if one part of your body touches a dead body, uh, your entire body becomes tameh. You in your entirety are impure. Um, the rabbis decreed uh, another level of impurity that um, is talking about the hands. Uh, and, and the rabbis decreed that, let's say you touched something, um, not that is directly uh, impure, but something that's, let's say, indirectly impure, um, your hands must be purified before you touch that object, uh, right? We see this when we wash our hands for bread, right? Why do we wash our hands for bread? Uh, it's based on truma. It used to be that challah, right? You took challah and you would give some of it, a portion of it to the priest. That challah that the, the priest received is called truma, and the priest needed to make sure that, the, that he was um, pure before he ate from the truma. Um, generally, the priests were very careful about the laws of impurity and purity, and they would be very careful. Um, but we want to make sure that when the, the regular person takes off uh, um, the challah to give to the priest, uh, that um, um, that they are doing it with purity, uh, and therefore uh, we, they, we, there was a, a decree uh, that anybody who is going to eat bread needs to wash their hands uh, before eating bread. The idea is that you're purifying your hands, uh, again, on a rabbinic level, not on a biblical level. Again, if someone needs to purify themselves on a biblical level, you need to go to the mikvah, right? Washing your hands doesn't, um, doesn't help in that situation. Uh, but here we're talking about rabbinically imposed impurity, and therefore it's enough to wash your hands, uh, again, in a certain way. Um, so the Gemara tells us that um, here this is an interesting idea that if one hand touches something that is impure on a rabbinic level uh, and then it touches the other hand, does it make it impure or not? Uh, and that is a whole machloket, uh, a disagreement on DAF 24 um, that maybe it, maybe it does. Uh, maybe your one hand needs to be holding the other hand when this hand touches something it's, that it's, that's impure, and that's how it's connected. Um, so there's a whole discussion about different degrees of impurity and how they are passed down. Um, another idea is that 
um, wet hands uh, can, uh, transmit uh, more than dry, right? If your hand is dry, um, maybe uh, it, it is less um, contaminating. Again, I don't like that word because it makes it sound uh, dirty or bad, right? This is not about dirt or bad or right or good, right? We're talking about purity and impurity. It's the circle of life. Uh, it's not. It's not good or bad. Um, okay. Um, the Gemara continues um, and talks about. Um, uh, let's go to the next Mishnah on Daf 24 at the bottom of Daf 24. Uh, here uh, again, till now we were saying that Kodesh, which is sanctified food, uh, is on a higher level than Truma. Now the Mishnah tells us that there are cases where Truma is going to be more stringent than Kodesh. What are the cases? Um, you trust anyone in the area of Yehuda, right? That is the area of uh, Jerusalem and south of Jerusalem. I live uh, in the area of Yehuda. Um, so the, the Mishnah tells us that you trust anyone in Yehuda all year round with um, things that are um, being processed um, for the temple, basically things that are going to be sanctified, wine and oil, right? Again, uh, this region of Yehuda uh, has a lot of grapes, a lot of um, olives, and they were using, right, if anybody uh, has been to uh, the area around Jerusalem, especially Gush Etzion, where I live, you can see vineyards, there are, um, there are wineries here, uh, you can see olive groves uh, where they pressed olives for oil, right? All of these things could be brought to the temple. So we trust everybody from this region about Kodesh, right? Because again, the idea, if you're making something for the temple, you are going to be very careful. Um, and during the pressing season, you're even trusted about Truma. So it sounds like Truma is on a higher level. Um, after the pressing season, um, you are not trusted, um, but you can store it till the next pressing season, and then everything is believed. Um, the top of DAF 25 tells us that um, you're trusted about your jugs of wine and oil, um, especially if they're like mixed together. I don't think in the same barrel, I think, you know, together in a group, um, even if it's 70 days um, before the pressing, uh, again, the pressing season, the season when they're pressing uh, wine or uh, I should say pressing grapes or olives to make wine and oil. Um, the Gemara says that we're talking about the area of Yehuda, of Judah, but not the Galil, right? The Galil is in the north. Um, there was an assumption that people were less careful in the, in the northern regions of Israel. Um, there are some nations that are uh, in between, right, the northern area of Jerusalem and, um, the, and Jerusalem. Uh, and because there are non-Jews in the middle, uh, there's kind of this distance, literally, you know, and figuratively. Um, so the Gemara tells us that uh, the Galil is not trusted because the Kutim, right, live in this area and their graves uh, that are going to be in the area between the Galil, the north, 
and Jerusalem. Uh, and therefore, if you they bring these jugs uh, of, of oil or wine to Jerusalem, we're scared that they're going to become impure on the road as they're traveling. Um, so then the Gemara suggests, wait a minute, why don't you just put it in a box and carry it, and then it won't become impure. Uh, and then there's a, a whole discussion if uh, that does protect from impurity or not. Uh, and really, the Gemara says, um, it, it concludes that there's no really good way to bring uh, these sanctified items to Jerusalem um, from the north. And therefore, you have to wait for Eliyahu, again, the prophet Elijah, uh, to come uh, and to show them, uh, you know, kind of the, the path uh, so that they do not uh, pass over any graves. Uh, which is interesting. Someone actually sent me uh, an email asking, you know, how long do you think that they might have set these jugs aside? Like, how long were they waiting for Eliyahu? Which is an interesting uh, idea. Um, okay, and um, everybody is believed uh, in the regular pressing season, again, in Yehuda, uh, but not late, late season, meaning in the regular season, not in a late season. Um, or uh, they're not trusted in the Galil, uh, again in the north, but in Yehuda they are. Or they're both, the north and the south, um, are trusted uh, when it is pressing season, um, and then there's a distinction when it is not. Um, again, as we said, uh, we trust the Am Ha'aretz uh, when we're dealing with um, Truma, um, but not... Um, um, but the, uh, we say that the, the Kohen, the priest, can't take it after pressing season. Again, uh, where they're believed when uh, it's basically production time, uh, but when it's not production time, uh, they're not believed. Um, but again, we said you can hold it till the next season. Um, okay, um, if you remember, we had a concept, uh, an area called a Beit HaPras. Uh, this is a field uh, where uh, they think there's a grave somewhere, but it's been plowed and you don't know where it is. Um, if you're going to Jerusalem to bring the sacrifice of Pesach, right, the Korban Pesach, you can check it for bones um, and, and therefore like make your way through this field, um, but you can't check it for Truma. Uh, again, we see that Truma seems to be um, much more stringent. Uh, right? How do you check it? Uh, either you blow on it, or if a number of people have already trampled it, it's seen as um, already um, checked. Um, okay. Um, ah, we mentioned that if you have a mixture of um, things that are sanctified and things that aren't, uh, we do trust the Amharet, uh, but we don't if it has to do with Truma. Again, um, making a distinction between Truma and Kodesh. Um, okay, the next Mishnah tells us, um, ah, okay, so just uh, to, to understand, um, you, the, the, the Gemara is going to explain it in a minute, but um, you were not allowed to produce pottery in Jerusalem. Uh, the idea is that a kiln, all right, those of you who are familiar uh, with pottery making, um, at the end of the process, you have to fire 
this the the clay so that it becomes hardened. Um, the fire from the kiln was very hot, and there was a lot of smoke. Um, uh, one idea is that maybe the smoke was very black, and they didn't want to ruin the walls of Jerusalem. Uh, or the idea is that it created a lot of smoke, uh, and it might have they didn't want it to get. Um, mixed up with the ktoret, the incense, um, and therefore uh, you were not allowed to produce um, clay vessels in Jerusalem. Uh, and therefore, if someone needed a clay vessel, meaning you needed a pot, a pan, a, a dish, um, where did you get it? Um, outside of Jerusalem. So the Gemara tells us that from Modi'in, and this is great because there is a city nowadays called Modi'in. Um, it is... Um, I would say about a, a 40 minute drive from Jerusalem, uh, it's near the airport. Um, so the Gemara said, um, find, so the, the Gemara says that from Modi'in to Jerusalem, that area, um, the potters are believed uh, that their vessels are pure. Again, uh, these are sellers that want to sell uh, to any pilgrims uh, that are coming um, who need v purified vessels for all of their uh, sacrificial food. Um, and therefore, we believe them in this area. Um, outside of the area, they are not believed. Again, because we assume that they're not being very careful. Um, the, if the potter is from outside of the area, if he is entering the area, um, so then he is believed uh, when he says that his things are pure uh, and his pots as well. Uh, what about Modi'in itself, right? Um, the city itself, is it seen as like in this area or out? Uh, and the Gemara basically says both, right? If the potter is coming from inside, let's say from Jerusalem to Modi'in, and a person is coming uh, into the area from outside, let's say from Tel Aviv, um, that person can buy pottery in Modi'in uh, for his pilgrimage or her pilgrimage to Jerusalem. Um, but if both the potter and the, um, the consumer are coming from outside, or they're both coming from inside, uh, then Modi'in is seen as outside of that area, um, they need to wait till they get further in to buy these uh, pots. Uh, again, um, these are small pots. Again, the top of 26 tells us this is only for empty small pots. Uh, again, pans, pots, vessels, uh, plates, um, or maybe a little bit bigger, uh, maybe even if they're, they have something inside. Um, they are believed. Again, we're going to try to make things easy or easier uh, for people going to Jerusalem. Uh, the next Mishnah on Daf 26, we're now uh, at the end of a Masachat, we're going to get uh, some very quick um, Mishnayot. So the Mishnah tells us that a tax collector and a robber uh, that is returning stolen items, meaning a tax collector who comes into your house and rummages through your house to take a tax, or a robber who came and stole something from your house, and then they come and return it, um, these people are believed to say uh, they didn't touch, uh, the, let's say, the, the inside of the item, or they didn't touch um, items in the house that they didn't take. Um, the Gemara says that um, 
that uh, in Jerusalem, everyone is believed about uh, Kodesh, again, about uh, sanctified food. Uh, and during the festivals, they're even believed about Truma. Again, we want to believe as many people as possible. Um, the Gemara explains this idea about the tax collector, what's going on. Um, the, basically, the idea is that uh, when the tax collector came, uh, he, this was actually a Jew. If he had a non-Jew with him, we assume he went through your house and touched everything. If there's a Jew who, if there's uh, no, if there isn't a non-Jew with him, uh, then he's believed to say, I only took what I needed, uh, everything else I didn't, uh, I didn't touch. Uh, what about these robbers? How, how do we trust a robber? They actually just came in and stole something from your house. Um, the Gemara says uh, they have repented, right? They did a tshuva, uh, and that's why uh, they're returning the item. Uh, and therefore, uh, not only that, but they are believed uh, to say that they didn't touch the inside of the item. Uh, and the, the, the Gemara says, uh, back to this idea of the festival, uh, during festival times, we assume that everybody, uh, or I shouldn't say we assume, uh, the, the rabbi said we characterize everybody as if they are a chaver, uh, and therefore um, everyone is trusted, trusted to say that they have immersed, trusted to say that they are pure, that their vessels are pure. Um, the Gemara, the next Mishnah tells us that if you have an open barrel uh, of wine or some bread at the end of a festival, uh, you can continue selling it after the festival, uh, even though maybe it became impure over the festival. Uh, or the, the other option is uh, that you cannot continue to sell it because we assume that it became impure and now uh, you cannot use it. Maybe you can save it for the next festival. Uh, others say you cannot. The next Mishnah tells us that um, they needed to purify everything in the temple after the festival. Again, the assumption is there are people coming from all uh, walks of life, all levels of observance. Uh, during the festival, we see everything as being pure. After the festival, we say, look, I don't know who touched what. Let's immerse everything uh, and start from scratch. Um, and therefore, they would immerse everything. Um, but if the festival ended on a Thursday, uh, on Friday, again, you're getting ready for Shabbat. They had a lot of other things to do, uh, and therefore they didn't need to purify the entire temple on the Friday. They could wait till Sunday. Um, the next Mishnah tells us that they would immerse all the vessels of the temple. Uh, they made sure not to touch the shulchan, the table with the showbread, um, because um, that was problematic uh, to immerse, uh, and therefore they wanted to make sure that, um, sorry, they wanted to make sure that it did not become impure. Um, the Mishnah tells us that all vessels in the temple, meaning uh, the, the shovels, the pails, the spoons, all of those things had replacements. So if something became impure, there would be a second or a third one that you could use. Um, the altars, right, there are two altars in the temple, the one on the, in the courtyard that's called um, either the stone uh, altar or the copper altar. Um, 
and the inner the altar on the inside which was gold for the incense um both of those uh could not become impure uh they are seen as attached to the ground um or maybe they couldn't become impure because they were coated and we'll discuss this in a minute um the gemara says that both the menorah right the candelabrum and the shulchan the table cannot be removed uh to be immersed and therefore, um, you shouldn't touch it because we're afraid it's going to become impure. Um, wooden vessels, right? The, the shulchan, uh, the table is really wood, uh, but it was um, covered in gold. So the question is, do we see it as a wood utensil? Uh, and a wood utensil that's not meant to be moved does not become tameh. Or do we see it as a gold utensil? Uh, and a gold utensil uh, can become impure. Uh, so the Gemara says, no, uh, the table was moved. It was lifted and shown to the people during the festival. Uh, they, showed, um, they showed the miraculousness of the showbread, of the lechem hapanim, uh, right? What was the miracle of this bread? That it was put in on Friday. Uh, sorry, it was, it was baked on Friday. It was put on the table, on the shulchan, on Shabbat. And it stayed there a whole week. The next Shabbat, when they removed it, it was hot and fresh, just like it was when they put it in a week ago. So that's the miraculous nature of the bread. Um, and uh, therefore, the, the Gemara talks about the idea that it can be moved. Uh, however, right, the top of Daf 27, again, this is our last Daf of Masachet Chagiga. Um, the, the last Daf tells us that the Shulchan, right, the table was actually called a wooden table. Even though it was covered in gold, it wasn't seen as a golden table. It was seen as a wood table. Uh, and therefore, it is susceptible to impurity. Therefore, you have to be careful not to touch it. Um, a beautiful idea, uh, the Gemara tells us that the altar gave people atonement during the time of the temple. Um, but nowadays that we do not have the temple, uh, where do we get atonement? The Gemara tells us from our tables, right? When we feed the needy, when we bring in guests, uh, that is a way for us to atone uh, for our sins, right? There's a concept that our tables are like the altar, right? Uh, there's there's a, a famous idea that you're not supposed to sit on a table, uh, specifically tables that you eat at, uh, because it's as if you're sitting on the altar. Again, that comes from this idea that the table has become um, the altar. Um, and from here, there's a discussion about the copper altar and the gold altar. Both of them are compared to the earth, and therefore they are not susceptible to impurity. Um, the last two ideas, um, if you look at the end of a masechet, usually, uh, and definitely at the end of a seder, uh, there's usually an idea, um, I, I would say, less uh, legal, less about Jewish law, and more about, uh, I would say, lessons for our life, or uh, a message, or a moral. Um, so uh, the masechet ends by telling us two things. Um, one is that the fire of Gehenom, uh, again, of hell, uh, does, doesn't affect uh, Torah scholars, 
Why does the fire not affect Torah scholars? Uh, because the, the Torah scholar fills themselves, the, that per, you fill yourself up with the fire of Torah, right? Again, the, the words of Torah are like fire. So if you fill yourself with godly fire, uh, the fires of Gehenom cannot affect you, right? And I think this is such a beautiful idea for all of you who have been learning every week or every day, uh, this idea that we are filling ourselves up with the words of Torah, uh, and these should be, uh, you know, kind of a fire within us. Um, so that's, I thought, a beautiful idea. Um, the second idea is that the fire of Gehenom doesn't affect the sinners, of Israel. What does it mean it doesn't affect the sinners of Israel? Um, it's learned from the golden altar, right? That's the connection here. What does that mean? Uh, it says that the golden altar uh, had a very thin layer of gold uh, on it, but the fire that burnt uh, didn't damage the altar itself. Uh, so if you can see this uh, thin layer of gold protects the entire altar from fire, uh, so too um, the mitzvot, right? All of our good deeds um, protect us from the fire of Gehenom. And, and a beautiful idea here is they're called the sinners of Israel. What does that mean? That even the sinners of Israel are filled with good deeds, uh, right? And I think that um, that's a very important lesson for people, right? Um, people think that if, if you do something wrong, you know, that's it, uh, you know, I'm doomed. Uh, and I think here the Gemara is telling us, um, no, you did one thing wrong, and maybe you did, you did 10 things right. You, you know, it's one out of 10. You've, you've done 10 amazing things uh, and focus on the positive. And uh, with that, uh, we finish Masechet Chagiga. Uh, um, I think that there are a lot of lessons uh, that we can learn from this Masechet. Uh, I think, uh, you know, one idea that I'm taking away from it uh, is this idea of the unity of the Jewish people, right? The idea that three times a year, uh, the Jewish people needed to come to Jerusalem. Uh, they needed to come together. They needed to interact with each other. Um, and that was uh, a way to unify the nation. And, and I think that uh, our challenge is to really think about how do we do this nowadays, right? How do we unite one another? How do we get together? I think, you know, on a small scale, it's about, uh, you know, maybe seeing one another on the holidays, uh, getting together. Uh, I think nowadays with Zoom, it's much easier, right? We're connecting all across the world. Um, but really, I think uh, this, uh, this idea of, of unifying the Jewish people uh, through Torah, through religious experiences is a very, uh, a, a very powerful message. Uh, and I really uh, wish all of you, uh, first of all, kola kavod, congratulations to everybody who has learned uh, really so, um, so intensely over the past, uh, uh, first of all, month, uh, and second of all, uh, almost, uh, you know, two years plus. Um, so really keep going. Um, the next Masechet uh, is, is Masechet Yivamot. Uh, we are going to be in the Seder of Nashim, uh, which means women. We are going to be discussing uh, issues pertaining to women. Of course, 
they're pertaining to men and women, but uh, it's called Nashim. You know, I guess uh, women are just so important. Uh, the whole Seder is called Nashim. Uh, we're going to specifically uh, be starting the Masechet of Yivamot. Uh, it is seen as one of the hardest uh, Masechtot in Gemara, but don't worry. Uh, I don't like when teachers say, you know, good luck, it's going to be so hard. Uh, it'll be hard and it'll be fine. Uh, so I really encourage all of you to to please continue learning. Um, please make sure to register for the next Masechet. Um, and next week, uh, I will be giving a, an introduction as well as uh, we will learn the first seven daf uh, together. I hope... Uh, I'll be able to, to condense it all in an hour, uh, but really wishing everybody um, a really wonderful, uh, a wonderful week. Uh, and we will, uh, we'll meet again next week, so I don't have to say Purim Sameach, because uh, we will do that, uh, uh, we will do the, um, we will do that uh, next week. Uh, Lynn is asking on International Women's Day, we read the first line. Uh, you want to read the first line of the next Mishnah? Is that what you mean? <laughs> yeah. Uh, we can. Yeah, sure. Uh, okay, hold on. Let me uh, let me open up my uh, my Gemara one second. Uh, and yeah, let, that's an excellent idea. First of all, it is customary that when you learn, uh, when you when you have a sium, uh, you should right away um, learn the the Oops. next. Right, the next idea. So uh, you are a hundred percent correct, Lynn. Uh, so let us learn. Um, okay. Um, the okay. We'll learn the first line. I don't want to get into any details because we didn't do any of the introduction. Um, but the Mishnah tells us that there are fifteen women uh, that exempt their co-wives. Um, from needing yibum. Uh, so I'll just explain one minute since we have one minute. Um, yibum is uh, what's called, I think in English, leverite marriage. Uh, but the idea is uh, that um, if there is, uh, um, if a man dies, uh, a, married, a married man dies uh, without leaving any children, his wife, his widow, uh, needs to marry um, um, one of his brothers. Again, all of this means that, uh, you know, he has to have brothers. If he doesn't have brothers, she doesn't have to marry them because he doesn't have any. Uh, if they have children, she doesn't have to marry them. Um, we're going to see that, again, uh, in the times of the Gemara, um, a man was allowed to be married to numerous women. Uh, and therefore, we're going to see that only one of the wives needs to marry the brother. Uh, and as soon as that happens, all the other co-wives are now uh, free to marry whoever they want. Mm -hmm. uh, just an interesting, uh, an interesting uh, idea is that in the Gemara or in the Mishnah, the co-wife, um, I think in the, in the, in the Mormon, I think it's Mormons, right? They call them sister wives. Uh, so in the Mishnah, it's actually the opposite. It's called a tsara. Uh, the word tsara means problem, right? Meaning uh, co-wives are generally, uh, they don't all live happily ever after. Uh, and therefore, uh, they're actually referred to as tsarot, as uh, 
you know, problematic to each other. Um, but basically, um, the Mishnah or the Gemara is going to describe um, different women uh, that are not obligated um, to do Yibum. And we're going to get through uh, all of these uh, very intricate and uh, exciting um, different women. There are 15 of them, and we will learn about them next week. So, yes, happy International Women's Day. Kolakavot uh, to all our women learners, uh, and really wishing everybody a wonderful week. Uh, Shavua Tov and Shabbat Shalom. Thank you, Rabbi.